Good morning. Our scripture reading today is from 1 Samuel 25, 1 through 13. That's on page 247 in your pew Bible. And if you don't own one, feel free to take that one in your pew as a gift from us. Now Samuel died, and all Israel assembled and mourned for him, and they buried him in his house at Ramah. Then David rose and went down to the wilderness of Paran. And there was a man and man whose business was in Carmel. The man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. He was shearing his sheep in Carmel. Now the name of the man was Nabal, and the name of his wife, Abigail. The woman was discerning and beautiful, but the man was harsh and badly behaved. He was a Calabite. David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep. So David sent ten young men, and David said to the young men, Go up to Carmel and go to Nabal and greet him in my name, and thus you shall greet him. Peace be to you, and peace be to your house, and peace be to all that you have. I hear that you have shears. Now your shepherds have been with us, and we did them no harm, and they missed nothing all the time they were in Carmel. Ask your young men, and they will tell you. Therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we come on a feast day. Please give whatever you have at hand to your servants and to your son David. When David's young men came, they said all of this to Nabal in the name of David, and then they waited. And Nabal answered David's servants, Who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters. Shall I take my bread and water and meat that I have killed for my shears and give it to men who come from I don't know where? So David's young men turned away and came back and told him all of this. And David said to his men, Every man strap on his sword, and every man of them strapped on his sword. David also strapped on his sword. And about 400 men went up after David, while 200 remained with the baggage. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Francis. You can be seated. Well, good morning. Let me add uh, my welcome to the welcomes that you've already heard this morning from Mark and from Francis through reading our scripture for us this morning. Uh, My name's Taylor. I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, I'm thrilled to be able to lead us now through a time of teaching where we take uh, whatever it is we just read, that weird passage that only gets weirder, I promise, uh, and we try to unpack it and see what God wants to uh, say to us through it this morning. Uh, But before we, we dive in, would you join me for a moment to pray? Father God, this morning we're grateful to be able to acknowledge with confidence that you are at work, um, that you are acting presently in our daily lives and in the world around us. Even if we don't see it or even if we aren't attentive to it, we know that you are working, you are present, you are active. God, I pray this morning as we open your word as we uh, read and try to understand the story of your daughter, Abigail. This morning, would you sow seeds of discernment in our souls? Would you make us into people who are more attentive as we pay attention to see what you are doing? Give us that discernment this morning. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus, by the power of his spirit. Amen. Well, last month, uh, the last time that I was up here uh, and uh, preaching, I shared with all of you my excitement 
that my favorite professional basketball team, the Phoenix Suns, had knocked off the Lakers in the first round of the NBA playoffs. And because I'm sure that you've been sitting around for the last month just wondering, like, how is Taylor's favorite professional basketball team doing? I figured I'd take a moment to give you a little update. Against all odds, the Phoenix Suns are up two games to zero in the NBA Finals, which means if they win two games out of the next five, they will win the championship for the first time in franchise history. Needless to say, I'm excited. Uh, it's been an amazing story, and, and I'm pretty optimistic. I'll be sitting and I'll be watching the game tonight at seven against the Bucks. But I'm also feeling a little bit like Michael Scott, like there's no doubt about it, I'm ready to get hurt again. <laughs> there's a little trepidation there for me, because the Suns have never won. In fact, they have a history that's plagued with getting close and then having something happen that, that ruins everything. No one expected them to be here this year. But it's an amazing story. And one of the things that makes the Suns' playoff run so fun and incredible uh, is the guy that led them there. And it's a guy named Chris Paul. Either you watch basketball and you know him from basketball, or you've seen State Farm commercials and you know who he is. He has a twin brother named Cliff. This is Chris Paul. And Chris Paul, for the last few years, has been widely regarded as one of the most skilled and talented point guards to ever play basketball. Just by all of the advanced metrics, everything he does on the court, he's widely regarded as one of the most talented to ever do it. But there was always one stain on his record. In a 16-year playoff career, or a 16-year career, he's never won a championship. In fact, he's never even made the finals in the first place. He's gotten close a number of times, but always fell short. Sometimes because of mistakes that he made, and other times just because of bad luck. So sports writers, if you just got on the Google and searched Chris Paul NBA, I don't know why you do that, unless you're a basketball nerd like me, but if you did that, one word would appear in those articles more than any other, and it's this word, legacy. Legacy. Sports writers are obsessed with this playoff run because in their eyes, there is one thing at stake for Chris Paul, and that's his legacy. It's his legacy. So they're asking questions like, how will he be remembered when his career is over? Will he be remembered as the guy who, who dribbled it off of his foot in a crucial playoff game? Will he be remembered as the guy who had all of the pieces in place but just couldn't quite get over the hump? Or will he be remembered as the guy who went to a young team and in his first season with them, he took their losing record and led them to an improbable championship? How is he going to be remembered? legacy because that's what legacy is right whether you play basketball or raise a family or run a company legacy is what people remember about you whether good or bad and we all leave one in our wake if you've been with us the last few weeks you know that, that we've been in a series that we're calling forgotten family where we look at kind of obscure or overlooked or or unremembered people in the bible and if you're, you heard the scripture this morning and you're still wondering why in the world are we doing a series like this, maybe that word legacy can help a little bit. Maybe the idea of legacy can help. Because when we talk about legacy, we're talking about, yes, how someone is remembered, but also what difference they made. In fact, a true legacy carries on not only in memory, but also in influence, right? 
In fact, I would venture to say that, that everyone in this room has been impacted at some point by someone's legacy. I think about my grandpa, who has left me a, a legacy of integrity and servanthood and a work ethic that I think about every time I'm tempted to compromise those values. I think about my late grandma, who, who, who left me a, a legacy of tenderness and humility and a really great sugar pie recipe that we make every Thanksgiving. The legacy of my family lives on in my memory and in my actions. So in this series, what we're wanting to do is we want to remember members of our spiritual family because they left a legacy, and a legacy that we believe has the power to encourage and influence us today. And this morning, we're looking at a woman who honestly, I'm just going to be honest, until they said, hey, you're preaching this sermon, I forgot she existed. <laughs> Completely forgot she existed. And her name is Abigail. But as I read this story, as I studied it this week, I absolutely fell in love with her story. And I hope that you all do too this morning. Because Abigail leaves behind her a legacy that I think we desperately, desperately need today. So if you haven't already, go ahead and meet me in the book of 1 Samuel chapter 25. 1 Samuel 25. Uh, the books of 1 and 2 Samuel were, are kind of a literary unit, uh, and together they, they focus more than anything on the rise and reign of a man named David. There's lots of other stuff in there, uh, but really they, they focus on, on the rise and reign of King David, who is one of the most important and well-known kings, probably the, actually the most important and well-known king uh, in Israel's history. But where we're dropping into the story today in chapter 25, David is not king yet. There's another king, and that current king, his name is Saul, and he is hell-bent on killing David to keep him from becoming king. So we're, we're joining the story this morning. David's on the run. At this point, he has fled, the, the narrative tells us, with his 600 closest friends to camp out in the wilderness somewhere. So David's in the wilderness. He's on the lamb. He's hanging out. He's doing whatever you do with 600 people in the wilderness. When he hears that there's a man nearby who is super rich. Not only that, but his money, more than anything, is in sheep. And it's sheep shearing season. Come on, why are you excited? It's sheep shearing season. Anyone? That probably means nothing to you. It means nothing to me. But to them, that meant a party. That meant a feast. That meant we shear the sheep, and we bring a bunch of people over, and we have a big feast and party to celebrate. We invite people in. It's a party. I grew up in rural Kansas, and we had friends who had uh, corn on their farm, and every time that they would harvest their corn, they would text my mom and say, hey, we're harvesting corn. Come and grab some, and we'll roast some together. This is kind of like that, but like times 100. That's what's going on here. It's a big feast and party. So David finds out that this man is, is shearing sheep, and then he hears that the guy is named Nabal. And he's like, oh, I know a Nabal. In fact, we ran into some servants of a guy named Nabal and saw their flocks in the wilderness as we were running around, and we took care of them. This is great. I did good for him. He'll surely invite us to the feast. So David sent some of his people to greet Nabal, and here's what he says in verse 6. He says, peace be to you, and peace be to your house, and peace be to all that you have. Peace. David comes, and his goal his peace. And then his people are like, hey, you know, we've done good by your servants. 
We helped them out, we protected them, we didn't harm them, we didn't steal from them. Can we get in on this party? Maybe some food you could spare for the anointed one, future king. The message is just, let's hang out and have feast together in peace. That's what David wants. And honestly, this is reasonable for him to expect. Remember, this is a culture that David lived in that highly valued hospitality, so welcoming in strangers, and reciprocity, so returning good for someone else's good. Highly valued welcoming in strangers and returning good for good. So this should be a no-brainer for Nabal, right? Welcome him in. But not so fast. See, what David doesn't yet know, the narrator has already let us know. And it's that this Nabal guy isn't the easiest person in the world to be around. Look what we read about him in verse 3. Now the name of the man was Nabal, and the name of his wife, Abigail. The woman was discerning and beautiful, but the man was harsh and badly behaved. I feel like they have a little bit of fun with that translation there, a little sassy. He's harsh and badly behaved. That's not the superlative you're looking for in the yearbook. And then here's how one of his servants affectionately talks about him in verse 17. Look at this, this is sweet. He's such a worthless man that one cannot speak with him. That's what his servants think about him. Does anyone know anyone like that? <laughs> and then if that's what enough, not enough, here's what his wife says about him in verse 24. This worthless fellow, Nabal, for as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name, and folly is with him. Go ahead and guess that if she had to go back and find someone else to marry, she might not choose this guy. <laughs> not a huge fan of him. But here's what she's saying. See, see, the Hebrew name Nabal, that root word, actually literally can be translated fool. That's what it means. The word means fool, which a fool is like the worst thing that you can be in Hebrew thought. You don't want to be a fool. You definitely don't want to be married to a fool. But that's what his name means. Fool was a term that was reserved for that special someone in your life who you just can't talk to. I mean, honestly, that's a great, if you want a great definition of fool, the servant's words are a pretty good definition of fool. Just that person who can't be reasoned with, right? Who speaks rashly, who doesn't listen, who only thinks about themselves. They don't care about God or justice or integrity or other people or any of that. You know that, that person who's just over the top, who always reacts at a way higher level than anyone thought was possible? That's a fool. And if that's a fool, it sounds like Nabal is really good at being one. And his response to David goes just about as well as you'd expect after a character assessment like that. Here's how he responds. He says, who is David? Who is this son of Jesse? Now, this guy clearly knows who David is. Everyone had heard about the Goliath thing. Uh, everyone had heard that Samuel had prophesied that he would one day be king, that God had anointed him. This guy's not just curious about more information, like, oh, who's David? I, let me learn more. Here's what he's basically saying. That name means nothing to me. I don't care if God has chosen you to be king. Your name carries no significance in my house. He's just dismissing him completely. Then he goes on to imply that, that David might be lying about taking care of his people, like, hey, lots of servants break away from their masters. Maybe your servants disobeyed you, or maybe it was someone else's flock. We don't know. And then he finishes by asking this. This is pretty remarkable. He says, shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my shears? Do you see the, the pattern there? And give it to men who come from I don't know where? 
Like, yeah, dude. That's what hospitality is. <laughs> and you know who he is. You know where he comes from. Nabal's fool is on full display in this passage. He's contemptuous. He's dismissive. He's prideful. Nonetheless, David's men come back. And needless to say, David is mad, right? He feels snubbed. He's been offended, and he has a right to be offended in that culture. This guy has bucked every social norm possible. So what does David do? Does he send men back to ask more forcefully? Does he cut his losses? Does he write a blog, an open letter to Nabal? Nope. I'm going to kill every single person in his household. That's how he responds. Let's just kill them all. Like, yo, David, whoa. Seems a little extreme. And what we end up having is a situation where even though it was started with people looking for peace, it seems like there's no hope left for peace, only war between a stubborn fool and a hot-headed military leader. That's where we're headed. Until Abigail comes on the scene. Abigail, Nabal's wife, doesn't think too highly of him. But one of Nabal's servants breaks off and he seeks her out. He asks for her to step in and de-escalate things a little bit, bring peace before it's too late. And amazingly, she delivers. She rushes out to David. She falls on her face. She pleads with him to keep his hands clean from murder, to relent from his intention to do harm. And even more remarkably, David listens. He repents. He turns from what he was going to do. He blesses her. And these are the words that he sends her with in verse 35. Go up in peace to your house. Because of Abigail, peace was restored. And I think if there's anything we can say about Abigail, and we're going to look more at what she does and how she brings peace, if we can say anything about her, it's this, that Abigail is a peacemaker who leaves a legacy of peace. Abigail is a peacemaker who leaves a legacy of peace. And friends, I think that this is a legacy that we desperately need today. Because doesn't any of that story sound a little bit like the state of our world? How hot-tempered we are, how quick we are to offend others, how easily we're offended, how loudly we respond when we're offended, how quick we are to demean or dismiss others, to react, to overreact, to retaliate. This sounds so much like the world we're living in. I feel like I hardly need to make my point, right? We see it around us. And the reality is that many of us are walking in it round like an arrow fitted to a bow, just waiting for one wrong word, one offense, one person who doesn't see things the way we do, and then we let it fly. But friends, that isn't the life that Jesus called us to live as his followers. That wasn't his vision for his bride. Instead, he would say things like this, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are the peacemakers. And that's where I think Abigail's legacy can help us. Because Abigail gives us one of the most remarkable portraits of peacemaking we get in Scripture. So I just want to take some time to observe what it is about Abigail that makes her such a master of de-escalation. To just paint a picture of this, this biblical peacemaker that we see in 1 Samuel. And because I'm a caring pastor, and I value your time, I've whittled it down to just six observations. Just six. 
Six observations, six qualities of Abigail's life that can help us become peacemakers in her ilk who leave a legacy of peace. So as we go through these things, we're going to spend a ton of time unpacking them, but I just want you to listen for the voice of the Spirit. See if God doesn't draw one or two of these to your heart as you go to encourage you, to convict you, to challenge you. See if he doesn't draw something to your heart. So here's the first quality that we see of peacemakers in this passage. Abigail shows us that peacemakers have the wisdom to seek understanding. Peacemakers have the wisdom to seek understanding. When we first meet Abigail in this passage, we, she's described like this. We, we read this verse earlier. Now, the ma- name of the man was Nabal, and the name of his wife, Abigail. The woman was discerning and beautiful, but the man was harsh and badly behaved. Right away, we're meant to see the difference between Nabal and Abigail. They're like the exact opposite in every single way, right? Where Nabal is a fool, Abigail is wise. She's discerning. That word discerning is a word that's all over wisdom literature. If you read Proverbs, if you read the Psalms, and the idea is just this, that she has a good understanding of the best thing to do. She sees things that other people might not see. We might say today that she has good sense. She doesn't fly off the handle. She calmly assesses situations and discerns the best way forward. Which is why Nabal's servant comes to her to figure things out. Because he knows. He knows that if anyone can walk that tightrope between a foolish husband and a hot-headed, powerful king bent on violence, it's her. Because she's wise. And later on, actually, when the mission is successful, David commends her first and foremost before anything else for that very quality. Look down to verse 33. David says to her, blessed be your what? Your discretion. And blessed be you who have kept me this day from blood guilt and from working salvation with my own hand. So the first thing David praises her for is her discernment. She understood the situation better than anyone else involved. She saw what was at stake more than either man did. Because she was wise. She was discerning. And this is important because we can do a lot of foolish things in the name of peace, can't we? Like, we can claim peace but act like Nabal. But Abigail, on the other hand, is an incredible peacemaker because her efforts for peace are always soaked in wisdom and discernment. She's always seeking to understand before reacting. So let me ask you, what kind of a spirit are you cultivating in your heart to prepare you for moments of conflict? A reactionary spirit like David? A contemptuous spirit like Nabal? Or is it discerning like Abigail, seeking first to understand before anything else? Peacemakers have the wisdom to seek understanding. And because Abigail had cultivated this wise spirit behind the scenes, she was ready for when it was time to act. Because that's the second quality we see in peacemakers. That peacemakers have the courage to take action. Peacemakers have the courage to take action. See, even though she's calm and discerning, that doesn't mean she just sits around and waits passively for peace to come, just hoping it'll happen. No, once she assesses the situation, once she discerns, we are told in verse 18 that she rushes to gather gifts for David and goes as fast as she can to meet him. Look what what the, the passage says. It says, Then Abigail made haste, she hurried, 
and took 200 loaves and two skins of wine and five sheep already prepared and five sayas of parched grain, 100 clusters of raisins, 200 cakes of figs, probably food prepared for the feast, so David gets his, his food anyway. And she said to her young men, go on before me. Behold, I come after you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal. And as she rode on the donkey and came down from under cover of the mountain, behold, David and his men came toward her and she met them. She rushed to take action. And this action took tremendous courage. Because remember, this is a woman in a patriarchal society who's defying her husband. She's hurrying off without telling him. And she's hurrying off to meet the anointed soon-to-be king, God's chosen one, and his 400 soldiers who are violent. And she's not going there to do anything except for to challenge him, to call him, to ask him to repent. Do you see everything she's risking with this? Maybe her own life. But peace was worth it for Abigail to do something courageous and bold. Because she knew it wouldn't come just sitting around. If she just sat around, the army would be there and she'd be too late. In fact, David also praises her for her urgency. Look what he says in verse 34. For surely as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, who has restrained me from hurting you, unless you had hurried to come and meet me, truly by morning there had not been left to Nabal so much as one male. Unless you had hurried. In other words, if she hadn't had the urgency to seek peace quickly, the courage to act in the moment, peace never would have come. And we can tend to think of peace as a passive thing today, right? Just keep quiet, keep my opinions to myself, don't stir the pot, just keep the peace. Maybe there will be peace if I just don't say anything or do anything. But to be a wise peacemaker like Abigail, we have to be ready to take courageous action when needed. Is there a situation in your life where peace is broken and God is calling you right now to step in and act? Maybe you've been avoiding it, but maybe he wants you to do something or say something that will be risky, but worth it to see peace restored. Is there a situation like that in your life where God might be calling you to active peace? Because peacemakers have the courage to take action. But Abigail also shows us that it's not enough to merely take action, however courageous it is. In fact, taking action can hurt if you don't do it with the right posture. Abigail also reveals to us that peacemakers have the humility to admit their fault. Peacemakers have the humility to admit fault. Look at the first thing, the very first thing she does when she sees David. Verse 23. When Abigail saw David, she hurried. She's rushing again. But this time she's rushing. She got down from the donkey and fell before David on her face and bowed to the ground. She, she fell at his feet and said, on me alone, Lord, be the guilt. Please let your servant speak in your ears and hear the words of your servant. We're told again that Abigail hurries, but this time she's rushing to get down and bow before David. She falls down at his feet. She calls herself his servant. And then she goes on to apologize for her husband, to ask for forgiveness. She puts herself in the position of blame. She's not the one who, who ticked David off. She's not the one who was a fool to him. But she puts herself in the position of blame. On me alone, my Lord, be the guilt. And it's actually kind of funny as she goes on how she, she apologizes because she's basically kind of like, I'm sorry for my husband. He's a fool. 
Like, really, it's my fault for even letting you meet him. I should have gotten to the door first. That's totally on me. <laughs> I'm so sorry about him. I wonder how many women, don't raise your hand, have, have apologized for their husband uh, in this room. Hopefully not Ashton too much for me. She puts herself in a position and a posture of humility. On the other hand, Nabal, he's full of pride. Remember that verse we read earlier, all the eyes and me's and eyes and me's. It's like the Brian Regan me monster, right? You me, you me, like he's all about me. But Abigail knows that being quick to humility is the only way to peace. Being quick to humility is the only way to peace. And what's amazing is that her humility opens the door to David. Opens the door for David to show humility himself in his response. Look what he says. He says, see, I have obeyed your voice. I have granted your petition. David obeys her. He humbly listens to this woman who's groveling at his feet, and he has the humility to repent, to say, I was wrong, you're right. He listens to this woman. So let me ask you, in your conflicts, are you quicker to dismiss someone or to bow before them? Are you quicker to dismiss someone or bow before them? Are you quicker to defend yourself or to humbly admit your own faults. Abigail shows us that peacemakers have the humility to admit their faults. And that humility enables her to do something else that I think is even more rare today than humility, and it's this, that peacemakers have the gentleness to speak respectfully. Peacemakers have the gentleness to speak respectfully. Look how Abigail speaks to David here. It says, now then, my Lord, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, because the Lord has restrained you from blood guilt, from saving with your own hand, now then let your enemies and those who seek to do evil to my Lord be as Nabal. And now let this present that your servant has brought to my Lord be given to the young men who follow my Lord. Let them eat this gift. And please forgive the trespass of your servant. For the Lord will certainly make my Lord a sure house, because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord. And evil shall not be found in you, so long as you live. Notice how she speaks to him. Yes, she speaks truth. Yes, she's firm in what she believes. Yes, she is honest. She's passionate about what she thinks is right. She's all of those things, but she expresses them without contempt, without looking down on David, berating him, scolding him. In fact, she affirms him while opposing his actions. She does both of those at the same time. She affirms him and God's hand in his life and opposes what he's doing and calls him to change. Here again, her wisdom is showing, as Proverbs 15.1 reminds us, a gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. All too often, we are eager to enter wrath. It feels good to let out the harsh words that have been percolating inside of us, doesn't it? I'll at least speak for myself, it does for me. But all that does is stir up anger in ourselves and in others. And we see this clearly with the harsh words of Nabal and David both back and forth about each other. All it does is stir up anger. And friends, please hear me here because I think this is incredibly important today, especially for the church. That speaking to someone dismissively, condescendingly, demeaningly is never the mark of a peacemaker, no matter how justified you feel. 
Speaking to someone dismissively, condescendingly, demeaningly is never the mark of a peacemaker, no matter how right you are. A gentle answer turns away wrath. How is your speech towards those who disagree with you? Take it a step further. How is your speech with those who offend you? How might God be calling you to grow in gentleness and respectfulness towards one another? She can do this because she's humble. Now, just because she's humble, just because she's gentle, that doesn't mean she isn't confident in what she thinks is right. Because we also see in these same verses this, that peacemakers have a passion for what God wants. Peacemakers have a passion for what God wants. Abigail's plea to David here is based on what she believes God wants for his life. That's the whole reason she's, she, that's the whole thing she's basing her plea on. She doesn't think God is in favor of shedding innocent blood. She doesn't think she, he wants David to do that. So she stands up for what she thinks is right. Her message is, is kind of like this. She's like, David, God will take care of you. He'll deal with Nabal. You don't need to take matters into your own hands. You always got it. Don't retaliate. She's passionate about what she believes God wants for David's life. Now, here's why I think this is important. David, he retaliates in anger, right? Like, he wants to kill all of Nabal's clan. And even though this might seem like the biggest overreaction ever to us, it actually would have been culturally acceptable. Like, odds are this would have held up in court because of how egregious Nabal's offense was. But even though it's a just cause, his retaliation is not what God wants. Even though it's a culturally acceptable and legally permissible, it's not what God wants. Abigail seems to be reminding David of what Paul reminds us in Romans 12 when he says this. He says, live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. That's what David's about to do. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. And if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. Abigail reminds David, she reminds us, that true peacemakers refuse to seek revenge because they want what God wants more than anything else. And often what God wants is at odds with what the culture affirms around us. And the same is true when we speak peace today. We can often fall into what is culturally acceptable in the name of a just cause. Now, we may not strap on our swords, right? In this story, everybody's strapping on their swords. Like, strap on your sword. They got their sword. He's strapped on his swords. We're not, like, reading the comment section on YouTube and be like, honey, look what this guy said. I have his IP address. Strap on your sword. Let's go get him. We're not doing that. But our culture has a clear code of conduct when someone offends you or disagrees with you, doesn't it? Demonize. Stereotype. Attack back. Type out horrible things for the world to see. If someone really offends, cancel them. Our culture affirms this behavior. Are your efforts for peace rooted in what God wants or what culture accepts? Are they rooted in what God wants or what culture accepts? Do you find yourself with this tendency to take judgment into your own hands or do you leave it in the hands 
of God. If you leave it in the hands of God. Abigail reminds us that that's what peacemakers do. Now she can only do all this, she can only say these things to David because she has the right perspective on the situation. Again, here's her discernment. Here's the last observation. Peacemakers have faith to see beyond the moment. Peacemakers have the faith to see beyond the moment. Abigail has a perspective that neither Nabal and David have because Nabal and David are caught up in the moment, right? In fact, when Abigail returns towards the end of the story to find Nabal after going out and doing all of his dirty work to make peace in the situation, she comes in on him and finds him drunk on wine. He's just sitting there drunk while she's out going and fighting his battles. And just as a side note, this is just kind of funny, uh, Nabal means two things. It can either mean fool or it can mean wineskin. So your boy is living up to his name in all the worst ways. He's so focused on the moment that having just snubbed a powerful military genius, he's drunk with no thought that he might be mad, no thought that a 400-person army might be on its way to annihilate his people. He's drunk. Now, David, too, is caught up in the moment, right? All he has eyes for are, are the slight and offense he received. He doesn't see anything beyond revenge. He gives no thought at all to how it might affect him in the future. Brothers and sisters, how often have we made a harsh decision in a moment without any thought to how it might impact us in the future? That's what David does. But not Abigail. See, Abigail sees a bigger picture than either man does. And she explains it in verse 29. She says, If men rise up to pursue you and to seek your life, the life of my Lord David shall be found in the bundle of the living in the care of the Lord your God. And the lives of your enemies he shall sling out from the hollow of a sling. And when the Lord has done to my Lord according to all the good he has spoken concerning you and has appointed you prince over Israel, in other words, when he's been faithful to all of his promises to you, my Lord shall have no cause of grief or pangs of conscience for having shed blood without cause or for my Lord working salvation himself. And when the Lord has dealt well with my Lord, remember your servant, remember me, remember my words. Among other things here, Abigail sees that violence now might cost David later. It could grieve his heart and mar his reputation when he becomes king. She has the faith to see beyond the moment. These words also reveal that Abigail trusts that God will continue to provide for David. He'll continue to take care of him. She says he'll be caught up in the bundle of the living, the care, the nurturing of God. Through the voice of Abigail here, God affirms his faithfulness to his promises to David far into the future. But what he does now could threaten that. See, she sees a bigger picture for his life that goes beyond a momentary conflict and that his present actions could impact forever. She has faith to see beyond the moment. Which brings us back to where we started. When God's people are discerning, when they're courageous, when they're humble, when they're gentle, when they're passionate about what God wants, when they're able to see a bigger picture, they leave a legacy of peace that outlasts them. They leave a legacy of peace that outlasts them. Here's how the New Testament writer James puts this. He says, Who among you is wise and understanding? By his good conduct, he should show that his works are done in gentleness that comes from wisdom. 
But if you have bitter envy and selfish ambition in your heart, don't boast and deny the truth. Sound like Nabal? Such wisdom does not come down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. In in other words, there's a foolish kind of wisdom. For where there is envy and selfish ambition, there is disorder and every evil practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peace-loving, gentle, compliant, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering and without pretense. And then get this, the fruit of righteousness, you might say a legacy of righteousness, is sown in peace by those who cultivate peace. The fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who cultivate peace. And that's what Abigail does. She cultivates peace. And her influence on David's life actually goes beyond this very story. In fact, in the very next chapter, chapter 26, her influence on David's life is very clear. Because David, again, is cornered by Saul. And he ends up being in a position where he can take Saul's life. He has the opportunity. And it would be, some would consider it just for him to do. It would have been understandable to those around him, culturally acceptable. But repeating words that echo those of Abigail, they're so close to what she says to him. He stays his hand. He keeps himself from innocent blood. Abigail's peacemaking has left a legacy of peace in David's life. He doesn't always get it right. We know that later on he's going to kill somebody, not justly. But she's left a legacy of peace that has an influence on how he interacts with people in the future. And her legacy doesn't even stop with David. Because of her actions, David's line is preserved. And from that line from which Jesus the Messiah would come, She protects David's kingship from any tarring of his reputation because from that king would come the Messiah. And in the wake of her legacy comes the ultimate peacemaker to whom she points, Jesus. The man who embodied perfect wisdom. The man who would humble himself to the point of death. The man who would stay silent and gentle when he was mocked and accused and beaten. The man who in holy courage walked the path of the cross the man who through the shedding of his innocent blood would bring us peace. That's who Abigail points us to. If she shows us anyone, she shows us Jesus. And she invites us to be caught up not only in her legacy, but in his as well, bringing peace to a world that desperately needs it. Let's pray. Jesus, I think that we can all agree this morning that this call to peacemaking uh, is hard. It's not something that comes overnight. It's not something that just changes in us on a dime. But it's something that takes time. But God, I pray that you would embolden us to take the hard, strenuous effort to get there. To become more discerning. To grow in our humility to be gentle with those we interact with, even the worst offenders, to be passionate about what you want more than what, what, more than what anyone else does. God, I pray that you would give us eyes to see beyond the moment to a day in which you will flood the world with your peace. God, would you use us to give glimpses of it in the meantime? I pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus, and by the power of his Spirit, whose fruit is peace.
Amen.